0: THE VICTORIOUS LIFE, PART 1, by B.B. Warfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It appears to have been early observed that the mills of the gods grind very slowly, and hasty spirits have been only partially reconciled to that fact by the farther observation that they do their work exceedingly well men are unable to understand why time should be consumed in divine works why should the almighty maker of the heaven and earth take millions of years to create the world why should he bring the human race into being by a method which leaves it ever incomplete above all in his recreation of a lost race why should he proceed by process men are unwilling that either the world or they themselves should be saved by god's secular methods they demand immediate tangible results they ask where is the promise of his coming they ask to be themselves made glorified saints in the twinkling of an eye god's ways are not their ways and it is a great trial to them that god will not walk in their ways they love the storm and the earthquake and the fire they cannot see the divine in a sound of gentle stillness and adjust themselves with difficulty to the lengthening perspective of god's gracious working For the world, they look every day for the cataclysm in which alone they can recognize God's salvation, and when it ever delays its coming, they push it reluctantly forward, but a little bit at a time. For themselves, they cut the knot and boldly declare complete salvation to be within their reach at their option, or already grasped and enjoyed. It is true, observation scarcely justifies the assertion, but this difficulty is easily removed by adjusting the nature of complete salvation to fit their present attainments. These impatient souls tolerate more readily the idea of an imperfect perfection than the admission of a lagging perfecting. They must at all costs have all that is coming to them at once. It was John Wesley who infected the modern Protestant world with this notion of entire instantaneous sanctification. In saying this, we are not bringing a railing accusation against him. There was no element of his teaching which afforded him himself greater satisfaction. There is no element of it which is more lauded by his followers, or upon their own possession of which they more felicitate themselves." The current orthodoxy, they say, had put limitations on the salvation of Christ. It had limited it in the degree of its attainment as well as in the persons by whom it is attained. It was the achievement of Wesley to lift these limitations and to make it clear not only that the salvation of Christ is attainable by all, but that it is completely attainable by all. Knowing exactly what I say and taking the full responsibility for it, I repeat, john mcclintock solemnly asseverates in describing the result of the church which wesley founded we are the only church in history from the apostles time until now that has put forward as its very elemental thought the holiness of the human soul heart mind and will nothing less than a new epoch in the history of the church has thus in the view of wesley's followers been introduced historically writes Olin o curtis Wesley had almost the same epical relation to the doctrinal emphasis upon holiness that Luther had to the doctrinal emphasis upon justification by faith, or that Athanasius had to the doctrinal emphasis upon the deity of our Lord. We are merely recognizing, therefore, what is eagerly proclaimed by his followers when we attribute to Wesley's impulse the wide prevalence in our modern Protestantism of what has come to be known as holiness teaching. The fact is, however, in any event, too plain to be overlooked. As wave after wave of the holiness movement has broken over us during the past century, each has brought, no doubt, something distinctive of itself. But a common fundamental character has informed them all, and this common fundamental character has been communicated to them by the Wesleyan doctrine. The essential elements of that doctrine repeat themselves in all these movements and form their characteristic features. In all of them alike, justification and sanctification are divided from one another as two separate gifts of God. In all of them alike, sanctification is represented as obtained, just like justification, by an act of simple faith, but not by the same act of faith by which justification is obtained, but by a new and separate act of faith, exercised for this specific purpose. In all of them alike, the sanctification which comes on this act of faith comes immediately on believing, and all at once. And in all of them alike, this sanctification thus received is complete sanctification. In all of them alike, however, it is added that this complete sanctification does not bring freedom from all sin, but only, say, freedom from sinning, or only freedom from conscious sinning, or from the commission of known sins and in all of them alike this sanctification is not a stable condition into which we enter once for all by faith, but a momentary attainment, which must be maintained moment by moment, and which may readily be lost, and often is lost, but may also be repeatedly, instantaneously recovered. The latest of these waves speaks of itself by predilection as the Victory in Christ movement, or the Victorious Life movement. Mr. Charles Gallaudet Trumbull the accomplished editor of the Sunday School Times, has come forward as its chief promoter. We gather that his conversion to the notions which he is now so eagerly propagating took place in the summer of 1910. It was preceded by deep impressions received from certain sermons preached, unless we mistake his allusions by President A. H. Strong and Mr. Richard Roberts. The doctrine which he preaches was not derived, however, from these sermons. Its affinities, as is elsewhere correctly intimated, are rather with the Keswick teaching, and behind that, of course, there lies the teaching of Mr. and Mrs. R. Pearsall Smith, while back of all looms the general Wesleyan background. The chief instruments which he employs in the very active propaganda which he is prosecuting for this doctrine are his journal, the Sunday School Times, and the Midsummer Conferences, which have been held for the past few years at Princeton. Both the one and the other have come to exist largely for its propagation. The Sunday School Times is now advertised as a weekly journal of Bible study and the Christian life for adults in which the truth of the victorious life is constantly presented and its problems are fully discussed. As an every week interdenominational paper for adults which seeks to share with its worldwide family of readers the riches of salvation and victory which are ours in Christ, not only hereafter, but here. This means no less than that the propagation of Mr. Trumbull's views on the victorious life has been deliberately made one of the definite objects of the publication of this journal. It is for this distinct purpose that the Princeton Conference also is carried on. This purpose is written into the articles of agreement by which that conference is constituted, and it is constantly proclaimed with great explicitness. The aim of the conference, we are told, is to lead men and women into a life of closer union with God, victory over sin and fruit-bearing through the presentation of the Bible teaching concerning the life that is Christ. Or, as it is expressed elsewhere, to lead Christians into a life of victory through moment-by-moment faith in Christ. Or, more crisply, victory in Christ is what Princeton Conference stands for. Standing for that, it is to be looked on, we are further told as a rescue mission for christians a rescue mission which it is sharply intimated is much needed mr trumbull's teachings are most accessible in a series of tracts the most of which seem to have been reprinted from the columns of the sunday-school times and may be had from the sunday-school times company and in a series of addresses into which the substance of these tracts has been incorporated printed in the volume which bears the title victory in christ a report of princeton conference nineteen sixteen these addresses we are told in the advertisement of the book put out by the sunday school times company comprise the fullest connected statement of the teachings of the victorious life that mr trumbull has ever given in conference work or has published in this statement it will be observed mr trumbull is spoken of as the recognized leader of a movement and readers are supposed to be eager to obtain the fullest statement of his teachings the addresses do not however supersede the tracts some of the tracts at least have been revised and reissued since the publication of the book And not only do the tracts contain many details of Mr. Trumbull's experience in which the movement originated that have not been transferred to the volume, but the same subjects are sometimes treated in the two in a somewhat different manner, and from a slightly different angle of vision, and in the tracts, with more freshness and vigour. It is naturally to these teachings of Mr. Trumbull's own that we go, as we are expected to go first, for information as to the teachings of the Victorious Life movement. Mr. Trumbull has, however, helpers in his task of propagating his doctrines, to whom also we should do well to attend. Mr. Robert C. McQuilkin, who was for some years associate editor of the Sunday School Times, for instance, has ably seconded his chief in the columns of that journal. And then there are the speakers whom Mr. Trumbull has gathered around him at the Princeton Conference, and whose addresses are included in the volume called Victory in Christ. If these may justly be thought of, so far as they prove to be like-minded with him, as secondary authorities for the ideas he wishes to inculcate, no doubt the books and leaflets, which he expressly recommends as literature on the victorious life, the best and clearest books on the truth of the life that is Christ, which is presented at Princeton Conference, may be appealed to in the third rank for illustrations of his teaching on this general basis we purpose to found an attempt to make as clear as possible precisely what these teachings are and what their affinities are in the history of christian thought there is a sense in which this is a work of supererogation just as it would be superfluous to subject each wave of the sea that washes at our feet to a particular chemical analysis to show that it is water and that the water which it is is bitter but on the whole it seems as if good purposes would be served by looking at Mr. Trumbull's teachings for the moment very much as if they were an isolated phenomenon, and permitting them to speak for themselves. Mr. Trumbull is accustomed to begin the expositions of his teaching by carefully explaining that justification and sanctification are two separate gifts of God to be separately obtained and by separate acts of faith. He thus bases his entire system on Wesley's primary error, the fundamental error by which the whole of Wesley's doctrine of sanctification is vitiated. But he expresses this in any case fatally erroneous representation with a crudity, and presses it to consequences, of which Wesley was incapable. Jesus, you know, he says, makes two offers to everyone. He offers to set us free from the penalty of our sin, and he offers to set us free from the power of our sin. Both of these offers are made on exactly the same terms. We can accept them only by letting him do it all. Every Christian, he proceeds, has accepted the first offer. Many Christians have not accepted the second offer. Or, as it is put in another place, every Christian knows and has accepted the first of these two offers, but many a Christian does not even intelligently know of, and still more Christians have not accepted the second of these two offers the adverb intelligently somewhat oddly inserted into the last clause is a sop to cerberus all christians of course know that our lord delivers his people from the power as well as from the penalty of sin they would not be christians if they were not entrusting to him their complete deliverance from both and more but few christians find the meaning in this statement which the writer wishes to attach to it the interjection of intelligently merely betrays the writer's consciousness that he is teaching a novelty something not ordinarily believed by christians this novelty is of course the sharp separation that is made between christ's deliverance of his people from the penalty of sin and his deliverance of them from the power of sin these things are not merely distinguished as recognizable steps or stages in the process of the one's salvation they are definitely separated as two distinct gifts of grace of which we may have the one and not the other which may be often are perhaps generally or almost always are sought and obtained separately of this separation of them from one another however not only do the generality of christians know nothing but the scriptures know nothing or rather it is definitely and repeatedly contradicted by the scriptures the whole sixth chapter of romans for example was written for no other purpose than to assert and demonstrate that justification and sanctification are indissolubly bound together that we cannot have the one without having the other that to use its own figurative language dying with christ and living with christ are integral elements in one indistinguishable salvation To rest these two things apart and make separable gifts of grace of them evinces a confusion in the conception of Christ's salvation, which is nothing less than portentous. It forces from us the astonished cry, Is Christ divided? And it compels us to point afresh to the primary truth that we do not obtain the benefits of Christ apart from, but only in and with his person, and that when we have him, we have all this crass separation of sanctification from justification as if it was merely an additional gift of grace to be sought and obtained for itself instead of as it is an inseparable component part of the one salvation that belongs to all believers lays the foundation of course for that circle of ideas which are summed up in the phrase the second blessing these are far from wholesome among them may be mentioned for example the creation of two different kinds of christians a lower and a higher variety with Mr. Trumbull, these two classes of Christians are merely saved people and real disciples of Christ. Thousands of saved people he says are not following after Christ, are not bearing the cross, and therefore are not disciples. A Christian is one who is saved from the penalty of his sin. A disciple is one who, after being saved, becomes a learner, goes on learning more and more about Christ. This does not seem to be just christ's teaching matthew sixteen twenty four Mark 8.34, Luke 9.23 And one asks in amazement, What is the penalty of sin, and what is salvation from it? Is not our sinfulness the penalty above all other penalties of sin? And is not holiness just salvation from sin? Are we not to credit Paul when he tells us that God chose us from the beginning unto salvation in sanctification of the Spirit? 2 Thessalonians 2.13 And in pursuance of this, his primal purpose has called us in sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4.7, and that therefore, saved by grace through faith, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God afore prepared that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Mr. Trumbull's distinction, however, is a necessary consequence of separating sanctification from justification, as a distinct blessing subsequently sought and obtained. As an inevitable result of it, a most unpleasant note is sounded throughout the whole literature of this movement of what we cannot call anything else than spiritual pretension these writers are always felicitating themselves upon not being as other men are ordinary christians average christians and these ordinary or average christians come in for a good deal of little disguised scorn we are told by the tract called subdued that not more than one in a thousand of converted men attain to victory that is to say, to the status of disciples. The rest are satisfied to live on a lower plane, where others are content with a meagre measure of piety and power, with an ambition merely to be saved as by fire. We read in the tract called Victory, and you claim your full inheritance in Christ, an overcomer, in order to reign with Him. That is victory. It is possibly only the language employed here that reminds us of the incident recorded in Matthew 20.20 and following but it is not of humility that we especially are made to think as we read. When Mr. Trumbull comes to tell us how victory in Christ is obtained, he refines on the dichotomy of Christians into the merely saved and the victorious, and discovers yet a third class. He speaks at times as if the victorious life were obtained by a perfectly simple act, just faith, as mere salvation is obtained. But it appears, as we read further, that the condition upon which alone it can be obtained has a certain complexity. It is indeed a double condition, surrender and faith, let go and let God. And we learn that these two elements are not only distinguishable but separable. We may let go and not yet let God. Accordingly, the surrendered life is not yet the victorious life. There is no victory without surrender, but there may be surrender without victory. Surrender and victory are not the same, we read elsewhere. It is possible to be a completely surrendered Christian and a defeated Christian. There are, therefore, it seems, three kinds of Christians. Mere Christians, very respectable church members who have received nothing but freedom from the penalty of sin, surrendered Christians who have surrendered themselves wholly to God but do not in some way or other let God, and victorious Christians who have not merely given themselves unreservedly and completely under the mastery of the Lord Jesus Christ, but know and remember that it at once becomes his responsibility, his, I say it reverently, duty, to keep them from the power of sin. We confess that we find it difficult to understand how this distinction between surrender and faith, between let go and let God, can be given validity we are tempted at once to pronounce it only one of the merely verbal distinctions with no actual content, which seem to impress themselves occasionally on Mr Trumbull's thought, are not the merely negative and positive aspects of what is necessarily a single act, erected here into two separate acts. Surely surrender, utter surrender, if it be surrender to God, is just faith. To let go, if it be a distinctively Christian act at all, is certainly to let God it must be confessed however that the notion of surrender in all this school of writers lacks somewhat in clarity sometimes it is so described as to reduce it in principle to merely a general attitude of renunciation of apathetic inactivity which has no specific reference to god and only supplies to him an unresisting field in which he may freely work this idea the affinities of which are more mystical than christian even when it is not explicitly expressed is felt hovering in the background in much of the exposition of surrender that is given us colouring more or less deeply the conception presented in proportion as it is present room is left of course for active faith following upon or in addition to it but in that same proportion the possibility of an active faith succeeding or accompanying it is excluded The soul cannot be in contradictory attitudes, passive and active, at one and the same time. The general drift of Mr. Trumbull's writing on the subject is to the effect that surrender merely opens the way for the divine action which gives victory. This divine action which gives victory is, in the most confusing way, interchanged with the conception of faith under the impression apparently that thus this faith is represented as the gift of God. We even have the two simple conditions of the life of victory, surrender and faith, explained as meaning that we must give Christ all there is of ourselves before He can give us all there is of Himself, where Christ's giving us all there is of Himself is identified with faith. The mediating thought seems to be that faith is just letting Christ do it all, a conception which appears to differ from surrender itself only in having a specific reference to Christ or God. The one thing that is clear about surrender is that it is something that we ourselves do. Surrender is our part in victory, and that it is the conditio sine qua non of the victory of God in us. No matter how the conception varies or what phraseology is chosen to express it, this one thing is presented with unfailing constancy and with the strongest emphasis. Mrs. Pearsall Smith thinks that the term abandonment might to some minds express the idea intended better than consecration or surrender, but she insists that, under whatever designation, what is intended is an act of sheer will, by which we remove out of the way the difficulties which prevent God from blessing us, and render it possible for him to do it. One of the tracts recommended to be read by those seeking the victorious life, the copy at our disposal belongs to the thirty-fifth thousand, prefers the term subdued and develops the idea under that conception. We must be perfectly subdued in every part of our nature to God's will and the disposition of his mind before God can use us for good things. The synonyms employed are such as these, this complete condition of teachable subjugation to God's spirit, absolutely conquered by the Holy Ghost, it might be supposed that under a terminology of this sort a conception would be presented which did some justice to the divine initiative. But no, it seems that even under this terminology the decisive act is still to be our own. God the Holy Spirit does not subdue us to himself. He is dependent on us for the subduing. We must ourselves subdue, subjugate, conquer ourselves to him. And the exhortation is actually given, Let us get subdued in every way in everything so subdued that we can keep still in God and see him work out the great bright thoughts of his eternal mind in our lives, from which it appears that on our act of subduing ourselves to God there follows a quietism when he takes the reins. If we will only put ourselves in connection with the electric current, then the current will flow through us and work its effects. The part of the individual is to make the connection, and that is his indispensable part. Only after that can God work, and after that God only works. This is the fundamental teaching of the whole school. We advert to it here, however, only incidentally. We shall return to it later. What is of most importance to call attention to here is the most fatal defect in Mr. Trumbull's doctrine of salvation. This is the neglect to provide any deliverance for the corruption of man's heart. Writers of this school are never weary of representing ordinary Christians as ignorant of the fullness of the salvation which is in Christ. They have learned only, says W.E. Boardman in a typical statement, that their sins are forgiven through faith in the atonement of Jesus. They have not yet learned that Jesus through faith in his name is the deliverer from the power of sin as well as from its penalty. Where they have met with these extraordinary ordinary Christians, we have no power to conjecture they are not the ordinary Christians with whom we are familiar. It is certainly not the ordinary Christian teaching that the salvation of Christ is exhausted in its objective benefits. We have already pointed out that, on the contrary, it is the ordinary Christian teaching that Christ is received at once for both justification and sanctification, and cannot be received for the one without bringing with it the other. As Henry A. Boardman points out in perfectly simple terms, it is not possible that a justified sinner should be left, even for a moment, in a condition of spiritual death. By one and the same act of faith, the soul takes Christ as its righteousness and its sanctification, as the ground of its hope and the source of its new life, as the author not only but the finisher of its faith, as the spring of its vitality and growth, as really as the vine alone sustains its branches, or the head the members." Whenever one-sidedness in the conception of Christ's salvation has shown itself in the history of Christian teaching, the tendency has been apt to be to emphasize its subjective at the expense of its objective side, rather than the objective at the expense of the subjective. A few fanatical Moravians, a few followers of that great preacher Friedrich Kohlbrugge, stand out almost alone as inclined to sum up salvation in its objective benefits when men have lauded justification as the articulus stantis ecclesiae, as the beginning and middle and end of salvation, it has not been because they denied or depreciated other elements which go to make up a complete salvation, but because they, rightly, see them all indetachably bound up with justification, and drawn inevitably in its train. It is not the ordinary Christians who hold to a fatally deficient conception of salvation, But the advocates of the victorious life, and, strange to say, the fatal deficiency of their conception of salvation, lies on the subjective side. They teach a purely external salvation. All that they provide for is deliverance from the external penalties of sin, and from the necessity of actually sinning. In Mr. Trumbull's scheme of salvation, deliverance from corruption has no place. The heart remains corrupt, and so, no man can say, I am without sin. It is within the power of any Christian, however, if he chooses to say, I am without sinning. Yes, immediately and completely. Reiterated emphasis is laid on this. God offers us, as an outright gift to be received by faith alone, freedom immediately and completely from all the power of known sin. Immediate and complete freedom from the power of your known sins. This is just as miraculous, we are told, as the miracle of regeneration, and just as exclusively the Lord's work this remark confuses us vastly from many points of view for example from this regeneration is a change of our nature but here is no change of nature at all we remain corrupt sinners still only we no longer commit sins that is known sins not that we cannot commit sins we can and indeed we gather generally do mr trumbull says he himself has committed them despite the miracle wrought in us we can never say i can never commit sin again we can always sin again if we choose i am not speaking mr trumbull asseverates of any mistaken idea of sinless perfection it is not possible for any one to have such a transaction with christ as to enable him to say either i am without sin or i can never sin again we are not saved from sin but from sinning we can be saved from sinning only moment by moment by re-exercising moment by moment the faith by which we let christ free us immediately and completely from all known sin this freedom though immediate and complete is momentary it lasts only for the single moment in which it is received and its renewal for the next moment is wholly dependent on our renewal of the faith which obtains it at this point however mr trumbull says the most startling thing he says throughout the whole discussion it is his constant representation that this faith by which immediate and complete freedom from all the power of known sin, alas, that he always says known sin, is obtained and reobtained, is our own contribution to our salvation. He can even say crisply that Christ plus our receiving is the formula for the hope of victory. And in his system, this must needs be the case until we exercise faith, we stand outside all the saving influences of God. For are we not free agents, not to be compelled even to be saved? Here, however, he actually says in a happy lapse from his habitual and necessary teaching, though it too is unhappily but a momentary lapse, but he himself will give us that faith, and will continue that faith in us moment by moment. Why, if this be true, why, most assuredly, it is possible, nay, it is certain, and beyond all prevention, to have such a transaction with Christ, that we can never sin again? For if Christ gives us the faith by which we receive immediate and complete freedom from the power, that is the commission, of all known sin, and if Christ not only gives this faith once, but continues it to us moment by moment, why, this too is taken out of our hands, and of course we cannot sin. Christ sees to that by himself giving us, apart from any action precedent on our part, moment by moment, the faith which secures immediate and complete freedom from all the power of known sin if we ask in wonder how we are to account for mr trumbull's lapse here from the very core cordis of his doctrine his contention in season out of season for the supreme autocracy of the human will the next sentence reveals it to us we can and must as francis ridley Havergal has so truly said entrust unto him our trust He has been reading Miss Havergal, and Miss Havergal is as fundamentally evangelical in the main current of her thought as Mr. Trumbull is fundamentally unevangelical in the main current of his, and he has taken over a phrase from her which is perfectly in place in the general context of her thought, but utterly out of place in the general context of his thought, which indeed throws the whole fabric of his teaching into confusion miss havegel means in the excellent passage to which allusion is made to tell her readers that we are wholly in god's hands that it is he and he alone who saves us and that everything that enters into our salvation our very faith by which we are united to our saviour is from him and him only mr trumbull cannot mean this his teaching is very explicit that we do our own believing in our own power while god and christ stand helplessly by until we choose to open the door for them to work in and on us we cannot entrust to him a trust which we must exercise as the condition precedent of his acting upon us at all we merely note here that mr trumbull who manages to teach together as we shall shortly see autosoterism and quietism also manages to inject an evangelical phrase into his autosoteric system and pass on end of the victorious life part 1 by b b warfield